This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II Radio Podcast. Today's episode is the NBC News Roundup of the morning of February 15th, 1942. Featuring updates from around the globe and at home. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Here is the Sunday morning roundup of the news from our correspondents all over the world. First, here is our reporter in London, England. This is London. John McVeigh speaking. London has heard the Tokyo claim that the British forces in Singapore have asked for an armistice. But so far, there's no confirmation of the reports here. London heard from Cairo a few minutes ago that considerable movement of enemy mechanical transport and armored vehicles was observed yesterday east of the line to Mimi Makili. The British harassed them from the air and during the day practically wiped out an entire enemy air force of 30 dive bombers and fighters. London also learned from Batavia that the Japanese began a big sea attack today against Palembang, the oil center on the southeast coast of Sumatra. It's reported that the Dutch have begun destruction of the oil installations. If completed, it would be the greatest material voluntary destruction the world has known. It's said here that Palembang is the main center for supplying fuel to the Allied navies in these parts of the world. If Palembang falls, the island of Banka will almost inevitably come under Japanese control. This would cut off the southern approach to Singapore, making the encirclement of the island complete. As you know, there's been a lot of discussion in Britain about the Scharnhorst and Gneisenau. Commentators have talked about little else for the last three days. I've read most of what's been written here, and I've heard what various authoritative quarters have to say. Perhaps the most significant point is that if the German Navy has come up the channel once, it may do so again. There seems to be no real reason why... Given proper weather conditions, the German Navy couldn't hold the channel for 24 hours, long enough for a fleet of invasion barges to get across and establish a bridgehead in England. The Germans now have a pretty sizable naval fleet, led by the battleship Tirpitz. With the British and American fleets scattered all over the world, the Germans can put out a naval striking force that might establish temporary control of a limited area. The destruction of big allied convoys or the guarding of invasion craft seem to be the two most obvious ways of using that force. To work in mid-Atlantic would give the British and American navies the chance to concentrate against the German fleet. But working in the North Sea, off the Norwegian coast, or in the Channel under heavy fighter protection would mean the Germans could do their work and get back to shelter before we could challenge them with any power sure to destroy them. Even in mid-Atlantic, the German fleet wouldn't be easy to find. If the enemy did get their whole naval force loose in the Atlantic... It could threaten all Atlantic communications, open up the possibility of a prestige raid against the the eastern coast of the United States, and generally challenge allied control of the Atlantic. 
Unexpected audacity has paid the Germans well more than once. And it might do so again. The action in the Channel proved not only the value of fighter protection for warships, it also proved that aircraft alone are not enough to stop big naval craft that are properly guarded. The British put between two and three hundred bombers and between three and four hundred fighters into the attack. The weather was so bad that the whole attack seems to have turned into an every-man-for-himself offensive. But even if it had been better, there's no reason to think that the attack would have been sure of success. The German fighters had to protect only the small area above the moving convoy. If the weather had been clear, air losses on both sides might have been greater. But the British, the British would have had a better chance of scoring bomb hits. But the torpedo planes wouldn't have had any better chance of getting close enough to make sure of hitting the warships. The Germans are believed to have been helped in predicting weather conditions by the German embassy in Dublin. Weather moves from east, from west to east, and full reports of era weather today certainly help build up the German picture of what the weather will be over the Dover Straits or the North Sea tomorrow or the next day. The Sunday Times writer Scrutator, noting that the Germans met nothing bigger than a destroyer, today says that everyone understands that the Navy's larger units must be stationed outside the narrow waters. But it's another matter that they should be stationed too far off to attempt interception at all. Scrutator says the action serves as a distinct warning that on certain sides, the RAF's efficiency needs keying up. John Gordon, editor of the Sunday Express, says one might reasonably have thought that after two years of preparation for an invasion, the British would have, have an anti-invasion machine ready in the channel, which would make the channel an inferno the moment hostile ships moved into it. The instant the Germans were spotted, he says, one might have imagined that clouds of mine-laying airplanes and small ships would have been strewing death in the limited sea path through which they must pass, that oil ships would be setting the sea on fire, that battleships fit to meet them would have been somewhere near to pounce on them. Yet what happened, Gordon adds? Airmen went out to bomb them with most magnificent bravery, but with the wrong machines for the job. This is John McVeigh in London, returning you to New York. Our next story as received here in New York from Moscow. Russian ski troops on the Central Front are crowding the Nazis backward to the old Polish border. Moscow Radio says this morning that four more towns have been retaken in one sector alone in this continued drive westward from Moscow. On three sectors of this long front, the German dead number almost 3,000 in two days of bitter fighting. And now let's hear more about the fighting in the Pacific. For our next report, we take you to the newsroom in San Francisco. Now we span the vast expanse of the broad Pacific as we go directly to the Southwest Theater of War to pick up Sidney Albright in Batavia, Java. This is Sidney Albright speaking in Batavia. The time is 8.36 on Sunday evening. Giving details of the attack on Palembang and the destruction of the oil wells and installations in that area, today's communique of the Netherlands Indies Fighting Forces says, as was stated yesterday, the Japanese, on Saturday morning, launched an attack over Palembang, dropping large numbers of parachuters. One Japanese bomber was shot down. At three different points, a total of 700 parachuters were dropped, armed with Tommy guns and light mortars. The attack was clearly directed against the oil refineries, but the enemy did not succeed in conquering them. Our troops did a good job and made short work of the invaders. Towards the evening, two of the points of attack were completely cleared of parachuters, while at the third point, we had the situation well in hand. 
with some tens of the enemy still alive. Expecting large-scale landing action, we proceeded the course of the night to carry out the thorough destruction of all vital points in the vicinity of Palembang. Bombers of the Royal Netherlands Indies Army this morning scored three direct hits on three Japanese transport ships near Muntok on the island of Bunker. The communique also states, it has been reported from South Celebes that the fight is still being continued in that area, especially in the vicinity of Makassar, where resistance is being maintained with great stubbornness. The Anambas Islands, east of Malaya, have been occupied by the Japanese. Furthermore, slight enemy air activity has been reported from various places in the outer provinces. End of the communique. As a prelude to the parachutist attacks yesterday morning, enemy aircraft attacked the aerodrome the preceding day. The attack was made by six bombers and 24 Navy O's. Some bombs and many incendiaries were dropped, but the enemy formations were dispersed by Dutch anti-aircraft. Meanwhile, 11 hurricane fighters of the RAF went into the air and a bitter fight ensued. In the dog fight that followed, RAF pilots succeeded in shooting down three Japanese fighters and one bomber. One of the hurricanes is missing. One was destroyed on the ground and a third crashed, but the pilot of this plane is safe. The voluntary destruction of the Palembang oil fields is one of the most serious disasters suffered by the Allies since the war started. The limited oil supplies available on the island of Java are barely enough to take care of Dutch requirements. Oil for the Allied forces will now have to be carried over long distances to the field of operations. The loss of the oil at Tarakan, Samarinda, and Balakpapan fades into insignificance compared to the losses at Palembang from a monetary point of view. And although the actual figures are not yet available, it is known that the value was even greater than all of the Borneo fields added together. Most of the American money invested in Netherlands Indies oil was concentrated in and around Palembang. The reference in the communique to expected large-scale landing action can be taken to mean that these operations are actually in progress. The three enemy transport ships, which were hit by Dutch bombers near Montauk, were most probably headed for the Meuse River which is navigable by large ships right up to the city of Palembang. If this assumption is correct, it will be the first attempt to invade Sumatra, although various parts of the island have been subjected to frequent raids during the past month. I now return you to San Francisco. Across the nation to Morgan Beatty, who speaks from the newsroom in Washington. A week of Axis gains on both sides of the world has raised a storm of criticism in Great Britain, as John McVeigh has told you. On our side of the Atlantic, the changing situation has brought numerous demands for a checkup of American war strategy and war production. The rubber situation is first on the list. Jesse Jones, war finance chief, and Donald Nelson, the war production czar, have issued a joint statement urging conservation of rubber. They admit we have barely enough to supply our armed forces for the next two years. The statement implies that Japanese advances in Malaya are responsible for the situation. But it is significant that neither Jones nor Nelson came forward until after Wendell Wilkie 
and Senator Ralph Brewster of the political opposition demanded the truth about rubber. The statement probably comes too late to block a Senate committee investigation of the rubber situation, an inquiry aimed at finding out why we did not step up synthetic production before Pearl Harbor. And the demand is growing for a Senate investigation of government agencies. Senator, Senator Millard E. Tidings of Maryland fired the opening barrage against the administration. His weekend charge in the Senate that governmental agencies present the problem of an overgrown monstrosity is still ringing in political ears in the Capitol. He also warns against the social reformatory bureaucracy at home in a critical hour of our history. The president had anticipated attacks of that kind earlier in the week. He ordered government agencies to check up their employees and find out how many could be released for war work. But the Senate Appropriations Committee has approved Tidings' demand for an investigation anyway. And the Navy inquiry into the Normandy fire is not satisfactory to some congressmen. They want an authority higher than a naval board to discover the facts about the strange fire aboard the former French liner. Sporadic labor troubles still plague the war production front. 600 men have walked out of the aluminum company plant in, De in Detroit, one of the most important defense plants in the Detroit area. The trouble had its beginning in CIO demands for double time on Sunday. The argument has been underway since January the 8th. And out in Seattle, that strike by independent welders has not been cleared up. But hundreds of AFL men have charged the welder's picket line to enter the shipbuilding plant. All of these domestic worries have been added to reversals in the Far East and in the Atlantic war zone. They indicate a revision of war production upward and a drastic alteration of the strategic picture. The Navy is now confronted with a stronger axis in the Atlantic, a German fleet capable of breaking out into the North Sea and into the Atlantic itself and roaming the waters of the Western Hemisphere. If that Navy could also take over the French fleet, a maneuver the Axis powers obviously hope to carry out, then we actually will be confronted with a two-ocean war and only a one-ocean Navy to fight that war. There's simply no blinking the fact that Japanese advances in the Orient and German threats in the Atlantic actually do bring a two-ocean war within the range of probability, which means the United States has reached a crossroads in history requiring more courage, more sacrifice, and greater determination than any of our pioneer forebears had to put forth. And new reports filtering into Washington reflect our intention to meet this challenge. For example, the executive of, big, of a big steel company has just reported that one of the plant's workmen has developed a shortcut to save five seconds on each billet of steel turned out. That five seconds means 79,000 tons more steel in that plant by the end of this year. That's all for now. And the news from Washington ends this Sunday morning roundup of news. You have heard John McBain from London, Sidney Albright from Batavia, and Morgan Beatty from our own capital. For the latest news, keep tuned to this station. This is the National Broadcasting Company.